Okay. We are in a series going over the seven I am statements of Jesus. And if you're unfamiliar with these, they are basically seven sentences that Jesus makes a simple claim about himself. Last week, Sam launched the series with I am the bread of life. Today, we'll be talking about Jesus claiming and saying, I am the light of the world. We go on next week, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, in one sense, um, the statement, I am the light of the world, is, is pretty straightforward. Um, Jesus in John makes the statement, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's, it's a straightforward thing. Like, we could already imagine what that means. Jesus is saying he's light, he shines in the darkness, he fights darkness, he's, he gives light to your eyes in a dark world, he's a lamp unto your feet. And all of those meanings are, are probably bound up with the statement, I am the light of the world. But you gotta know, Jesus is the master teacher. There is no teacher greater than Jesus. No teacher has even come close. So when Jesus makes a statement, it's probably packed with meaning. It probably has layers and layers and layers of meaning. You can just dig, 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 and never reach the bottom. And so on the surface level, everyone can understand what I am the light of the world means. But if you want to really unlock the mystery of what's going on, you have to dig into the details. And when you do that, the mystery reveals itself. And you'll see Jesus is the master. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows when he's doing it, where he's doing it, and why he's doing it. So let's go over the details. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, where is he at? John chapter 8 tells us that when Jesus makes this statement, he's in the temple treasury. The temple treasury is located in what's called the women's court in the temple in Jerusalem. So 2,000 years ago, first century world. There's the temple in Jerusalem. It has not been destroyed. That occurs in 70 AD. And there's different layers in the temple. There's places where only the priests can go, places where only the the men can go. Then there's a women's court where both men and women can be. These are the rules that govern the first century temple. Now, you need to know that Jesus makes a statement in the court of the women. So basically everybody male, female, you don't have to be a priest. Everyone could be there, which makes the court of the women the most kind of crowded place in the temple. It's going to be packed with people. It's also the place, by the way, because the temple treasury is there, where you'd give your tithes and offerings. There were 13 sort of giant receptacles placed throughout the court of the women in the temple treasury, where you would go and give your tithes and offerings. This is where the widow, who uh, many of you know, it's a very famous story, the widow gives her last two mites. She drops them in one of these receivers. Now, it's in the most crowded area of the temple where Jesus makes the radical claim that he is the light of the world. Now, this is a very controversial and exclusive statement, both then and, both then and now. Like, because Jesus doesn't step up and say, I am one of the great lights of the world. I am one among many lights in the world. I am part of the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's me. It's an exclusive statement. And he makes that exclusive statement in the packed area, in the court of the women in the temple treasury. Okay, so that's the where. Now the when. John 8.20 tells us that Jesus says this 
while the Feast of Tabernacles is occurring. The Feast of Tabernacles, in, in Hebrew, in, in, in Jews today, will refer to this as Sukkot. And Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is an agricultural festival, a feast that lasts for seven days, and all of Israel is supposed to come and celebrate this. The agricultural festival is based upon this idea that in the harvest time, the farmers go out to work, and they want to get as much work done in the morning, and then when the sun gets the most blazing hot, then you build a little hut or a mini tabernacle, or a tent, or a booth, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. <clears throat> and during that time, you get under the shade and wait for the sun to cool down, the weather to cool down, and then you can continue to work. So essentially, an agricultural festival that's based upon building little huts to cover yourself and give yourself shade in the heat of the day. However, Leviticus says that this building of these huts in harvest time has a greater meaning. Because during the harvest time and during the Feast of Sukkot, when you're building these tents, you are supposed to remember how you were once wandering around in the wilderness, and because you were a nomadic people at the time in the wilderness, you built little tents and huts. So briefly recall, Israel is in slavery in Egypt from our Exodus series. God delivers them, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. During that time, they don't have homes, they don't have permanent structures, they're living in booths or tents or huts. And so the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, is supposed to draw Israel back and remember, you once wandered in the wilderness and you lived in these huts. Now here's where it gets interesting. Who led the people in the wilderness wanderings? One answer is Moses, yes, but go up the hierarchy. God. And how did God lead these people in the darkness? He revealed himself as a pillar of fire. So in the wilderness wanderings, as they were nomadic and living in tents, God led them as fire, a light in the sky. And they followed him. So in the first century world in Jesus' day, when they're reflecting on Sukkot, and they're reflecting on this Feast of Tabernacles, it's designed to bring your memory back to the point when you were wandering around in the desert and God lived among you as a light. This is important here. God's presence was with his people and they knew it because of the pillar of fire. God's presence was his, with his people and they knew it because he was shining among them. Now because of this, in Jesus' day during Sukkot, they practiced something called the illumination of the temple. And the illumination of the temple was a ceremony that took place during Sukkot, during the seven-day period. And what they did is they'd set up these four giant, huge sort of menorah lamp candelabres, four of them, in the corners of the court of the women. These things were massive. You have to picture them. They're 70 feet tall. 70 feet tall lamps with multiple branches, and each branch had like a 10-gallon tank of oil to keep it burning through the night. The idea was that you were going to light up the temple as bright as it possibly could be. Why? Because that's what God did when he guided you in the wilderness. It's the presence of God in the temple among the people. Now, also during this time, it was a, a festival that was designed to be celebratory. There was some stuff in the Jewish calendar where you're supposed to reflect on your sin and repent. Sukkot, is a feast. It's a time of celebration, and those bright lights are lighting up all Jerusalem. 
In addition, other people would bring lamps and lanterns to add to the light and to the spectacle. Not a single house in all of Jerusalem, it was said, could escape the light that was shining in the temple. In fact, there's records of people miles and miles away that would see Jerusalem shining in the distance. Um, what added to this, uh, if, if anyone's ever been to Israel, if you go specifically, the, the Western Wall does this probably the best, but the Western Wall, when light hits it, it takes upon a, like a gold bright color. Um, it's because the walls are made of limestone. And when the lights hit limestone, they turn this goldish color. Jerusalem is often called Jerusalem of gold because of the limestone and the light hitting it. So the whole city kind of becomes this glowing, golden, like magical looking city, even from a distance. This idea is that God's presence is there, just like he was with his people in the wilderness wanderings. There's a tradition that says during Sukkot, the people of Israel in the temple would say, our fathers turned our back to the temple of the Lord, but we look upon the Lord. Another early rabbinic source says that one who has not seen Sukkot has not ever seen true joy because that was the type of celebration that was occurring. Festival, celebration, lights, incredible time. So the where? Temple treasury. The when? Sukkot. Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of lights. Last piece of detail, the backdrop. What I mean by the backdrop is the scriptural backdrop. What is going to be in the average Jewish mind in the first century as they're beholding all of this? What does light do symbolically to the average Jewish person who's there during this time? Well, think, think about light through the scriptural lens. When you think light, what Bible verses come to mind? Like, start at the very beginning. That's, that's where I want you to start. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth is without form. It's void. In the Hebrew, it's a tohu vavohu, a dark, formless void. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. It is the first act of creation. Light, God speaking light into the world, is the first act of creation. So if you were to think about light in the biblical sense, like that's like the first thing that would come to your mind. New creation, God's creative force in the world. Secondly, it's a very popular verse in, in section of scripture. Isaiah 42 is a prophetic statement about the Messiah who is to come. In Isaiah 42, it says of the Messiah, it says that he will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, this is important because it's not just a light to Israel. The Messiah is going to be a light to the Gentiles. If you're, if you're new to this, Gentile just means anyone who's not Jewish in the Bible. Jesus, or the Messiah, the, prof, the one who's being prophesied about, is somehow going to be a light to all people. And the idea in the Old Testament is that the light would shine in Israel, specifically Jerusalem, and all the nations would gather unto the light. Okay. It's another one. Gets really good. In 2 Chronicles, the son of David, who's named Solomon, is going to build and construct the first temple. There was a tabernacle, like a moving tent in the wilderness, but the first true temple is built by Solomon. Solomon builds it 
And then he's going to initiate the inauguration of the first temple. And as he does this, there's a holiday that's about to occur. You want to take a guess which one it's going to be? Sukkot. At the culmination and dedication of the temple, its ending begins with the Feast of Tabernacles, a time of celebration, a time of joy. And when you read it in Second Chronicles, people are rejoicing, celebrating, having the time of their life. They're singing, they're dancing, men, women, and children. Everything's good. Celebration of the new temple. Now, Solomon has this prayer. It's incredible. He basically wants God to show up in the temple like he did in the tabernacle days. How would you know if God showed up to your temple like he did in the tabernacle days? If a great big pillar of fire came down and lit the whole place up with his presence. So he's waiting for the pillar of fire, the light to return to the temple. And God does it. He shows up. The light returns to the temple and God's presence is once again with his people. Now, as Solomon's praying for this temple inauguration, he, it's bizarre. It's incredible. He almost interrupts his prayer. He's going, God, we want you to come down. We want to worship you. We want it. And then he stops and he's, could God even dwell on earth? Could God dwell among us? And then Solomon says this, the highest heavens cannot contain you. So how in the world is this temple going to contain your presence? I mean, think about it. He's been working on this temple, making it one of the most beautiful architectural masterpieces in the ancient world. He's, and he's all done. It's finally, he's like, wait a second. The highest heavens can't contain you. What are we trying to do with this temple right here? If the heavens can't continue, how could you dwell on earth? How could you dwell among men? And Solomon basically kind of goes, well, nevertheless, we're going to ask you to come down anyway. And he does, and the, and the fire returns. Okay. Now, picture yourself in the temple when Jesus says these words. You know the location. You know the wind. The wind, Sukkot, festival, Feast of Tabernacles. And you know the scriptural backdrop. Picture those giant lanterns, the giant lamps shining, everyone's shining, the city walls are shining, there's celebration, Jerusalem of gold. And Jesus steps up and says, I am the light of the world. Do you see this? Do you see what he's doing? He's not just saying, oh, I'm a light in a darkness and I could conquer evil. No, no, no. Who is the light who comes down into the temple and lights it up? God himself. Jesus is saying clearly, and the Jewish audience would hear these things, he himself is the pillar, the cloud, the light that is shining in the temple. You think these lights are bright? These lights are shadows. You think the 70 foot tall lanterns are no, shadows? I am the light of the world. Incredible statement. Incredible statement. Everyone would have been, you know, blown away. And you know this because right after, if you read it in John chapter 8, everyone's like, they start asking him questions because they want to trip him up and get him caught saying something so they can kill him. It's like, no, no, you don't get away with doing that. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, I want to return to this, but I want to go a different direction and then we'll come back. Built into this claim is an assumption and there's an assumption of darkness. Jesus is saying, I'm the light, and I'm it. Everything else, darkness. Now, this is incredibly offensive to the modern ear. 
And, it, and if you, you come here often, you'll kind of hear that often. Um, but Jesus' cl- claim is that he's the light. He doesn't look at everyone and says, you know, all human beings are lights and we're all generally good people. And you're mistaken to lock your doors because no one would ever steal anything. Jesus and the biblical authors assume that God is good and the world is a place of darkness. In fact, in Ephesians, it says that the world is presently in the domain of darkness and all of those who are outside the light of Christ are in the domain of darkness under the power and authority of the prince of the power of the air. You're slaves to sin in the domain of darkness. You don't got the light. And Jesus says, I am the light. Now, the reason why this is difficult for us to understand is because we live in one of the most prosperous times in the, in the world. And, and oftentimes, especially Christians, if we're honest with ourselves, we sort of shelter ourselves from the evil of the world. And there's a time and a place to do that. Like you want to you protect your family, you want to protect your kids, but, but we kind of turn off what's really going on in the world and in our own culture. And the Bible assumes there's immense darkness in this world. Now, when I want to kind of look at the current state of darkness in the world today, I have a place I turn to. Twitter. Um, now, if, if you're not on social media and you don't know how social media works, let me break some things down real quick. <clears throat> so Twitter is, is dark. Uh, Facebook is neutral because Facebook, you may see some, some, some depressing, sad stories, but you're also going to get like puppy videos and like, oh, look at this duck crossing the road. He didn't get run over. And then, you, you know, and you share, and you share something to brighten up your day. You get that on Facebook. Instagram, mostly pictures of your friends. And depending upon how old you are, it's either going to be a lot of pictures of your friends with their kids, if you're in that age bracket, different age bracket with their grandkids, or it's... Uh, you know, you posting picture of like of yourself at some amazing restaurant with a piece of steak going, having a good time, trying to project like your life's, you know, so great. But as soon as you cut into that steak, it was burnt anyway. It's, but you, you, didn't, you, didn't post that, you didn't post that picture. You know, you left that one out. Snapchat, if you're over 20, don't even, don't even worry about it. I, I've, I've reached the age where there's certain social media, I go, nah, too old, too old. Okay, so, but Twitter is, is, is uh, it's Mordor, it's bad, uh, it's a lot of negativity. The system is designed that way. It's like you only get X amount of words to prove your point, and if that's the case, then you're gonna make the most short, like cutting, jerk, like satirical, messed up thing to say because that's what gets you retweet. So the, the system is like designed to produce that. Uh, now, on Twitter, this is just from the last few days of what I've scrolled through. I want to remind you the darkness that's out there because the biblical authors did not pretend that this world was okay. Christianity did not come on the scene and say, oh, Jesus Christ has been killed and resurrected and now everything's good. It said there is a domain of darkness. You don't want to shelter yourself from this because we're going to see you have a role to play in it. So the last few days just from Twitter, I saw an article on Twitter posted by CBS uh, introducing the world to a growing phenomenon that's actually been, been quite common for, for several years now called polyamory. Some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may not be. It kind of sounds like polygamy. It's related, but it's distinct. Polygamy is this idea that um, someone gets married to multiple spouses. Polyamory 
is where you are in a com committed but open within the group loving relationship. So four, five, six, seven, eight people, I don't know what the cap is, but you're committed to each other. Four, five, six, seven people. And typically gender doesn't play a role in it. So it's like we're in group love together. And the CBS article uh, video was like saying, introducing you to, the, to, to one of the new things taking place among urban young people, da da da. And it was like, I didn't watch the documentary. Maybe they had a more critical tone in it, but in the little two minute snippet, it was just like, cool, new things. It's like, you could also watch documentary of the children being brought up in this. You know, when, it, when a generation sees their own sexual and relational fulfillment, a greater need than the need of children, I'm telling you, that generation is already dead. It's only a matter of time. And so, yeah, polyamory, cool. I also saw, um, this happened uh, in a couple occasions where kids, with the blessing of their parents, I'm talking about six, seven, eight-year-old kids, were dressed and dragged and allowed to dance as if they were at a strip club. So here's my seven-year-old boy dressed in drag as a girl, and he's dancing as if he's at a strip club. And guess what? There's an audience throwing money. How cute. Now, um, there is a massive debate in this country with gender and sexuality, and that's a very difficult discussion that, that we don't have time to get into today. I think the Bible has the best answers for gender and sexual issues ever, period. I believe that. But I also know there's people who, who are just checking Christianity out, new to it. Um, but I will say this, the Bible has good answers for this stuff. But if you think it's cute to sexualize children at the age of six, seven, and eight, your moral compass is so fractured, you need to repent today before you lose your ability to even make moral judgments. That is a nation that is about to be handed over. Do you know who did this to children? Nero. Nero did this stuff to kids dressed him up, transitioned him at ages, and they became his lovers. The Bible refers to Nero as the Antichrist, 666. This is next level evil. You want to get God mad? You mess with kids. What does he say? You mess with kids? Better for a millstone. Throw them in the lake. It's heavy stuff. And as I watch this stuff, there is a room full of adults clapping as if it's so wonderful. saw articles on the drug epidemic, specifically the, the opiate crisis, which is wreaking havoc on our nation. You think about this. We live in the greatest country with the greatest standard of living ever conceived, but we can't stop medicating our, our, our pain. We're turning to drugs to help us with the pain all across the country. Articles on how we're slaves to devices, you know? Like literally we can't stop looking at our phone. Sam gave a great message last week and called the phone Little God. racial tensions. It's all kinds of stuff. Abortions. And, and, and again, I want to be sensitive here. Um, I spoke at uh, an Informed Choices banquet a while ago, and I, I only had a few minutes, but I made one point. It was basically that when I was growing up, um, abortion was being debated. There were still people pro-life and pro-choice. Uh, and there's, al there's always going to be th th that debate. But, but basically everyone, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, didn't think abortion was that great of a thing. 
They, they said, abortion is a horrible thing. I wouldn't want to wish it upon any woman, but I believe because of horrible standards, uh, circumstances, and I believe that women should have the right to choose that it should, should be legal. Women should have the right to choose, but I wouldn't wish that upon people. I wouldn't wish that someone would be put in a circumstance where they have to make that decision. That's when I was growing up, just 20 years ago. Now, it's celebrated. You get together and have abortion birthday parties. You get together and people will compete upon who's had more. You're gonna live stream your abortion party. There's darkness. There's darkness. Economic injustices. I mean, you could just read about how people are, are being taken advantage of especially people with, with, the people who get taken advantage of most often are the people with the least amount of money. And it happens in corporate schemes, it happens in other nations, it happens in this nation's by Christian preachers. Christian preachers telling poor people if they send their last $10, God's gonna bless them with $10,000. It's evil. Sexual morality, I could talk on and on about this, but maybe just let's talk about the fact that we invented as human beings one of the greatest technological achievements in human history, the internet, and what is it primarily used for? Pornography. Which relates to the next issue of human trafficking. Major uh, pornographic company this week was busted. I read an article from Twitter on this um, because there was videos on their site, tons of them, um, and essentially, somehow it got to the authorities, and it turned out one of the girls who was appearing in these hundreds of videos was a 15-year-old girl that was either a runaway or a kidnapped or a trafficked young girl. And this stuff had been circulating. And through this, they were able to uncover that a lot of these videos that were circulated on the site were from trafficked girls, young girls. So next time you look at that stuff, understand that web goes deep and you are participating, whether you like it or not, in something far evil than you just imagine is, is a quick little fix. The persecution that's going on in the world today. People are suffering, they're in prison, they're rotting away for political motivation, religious motivation, all kinds of different reasons. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but there is real darkness in the world. I'm not just talking like, oh, you need to be a light like Jesus. When someone is rude to you at the grocery store, bless them rather than curse them. Like, sure, okay, that's given, you're Christian. But there is real darkness in the world. And oftentimes we can, you know what I mean? Who wants, I, I don't like reading this. It's like depressing. You ever read something or see something on the news? It's like, well, there goes my day. How can I enjoy anything off of that? But actually, by the way, you're being trained to actually ignore that because what comes up right after that is the cute puppy video. And it's rewiring your brain to become numb to human suffering and pain. Because in 20 minutes, you can see horrible tragedy, puppy video, another horrible tragedy, birthday video, horrible tragedy, human suffering, and sports highlights. You know, no other people in human history process that like that. You lived in a village, you got news of a tragedy from far away by a messenger. You didn't turn on the highlights of the baseball game. Your brain is being rewired to turn human suffering off, which is coincidental because 
especially my generation and younger, think we care about human suffering so much. We're so concerned about all the suffering people. We don't care about suffering people. We just want people who have more than us to come down to our level. We don't care about suffering people. And so Jesus says, yes, there is immense darkness in the world. What are you going to do about it? Now here's the paradox or contradiction, if you will. But the contradiction has the ability to resolve itself. Jesus makes the exclusive claim in John that he's the light of the world. In Matthew, he says something different. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In Matthew's gospel, he says, you are the light of the world. And what's your purpose as a light of the world? People are supposed to see your works, how you live, and in turn glorify the God of lights in heaven, the father of lights in heaven. They see you and in turn look to God. So it's sort of like, wait, wait, which one's right? Is Jesus the light or are we the lights? Now, uh, there's an illustration that goes all the way back to a time when I was in high school Hume Lake camp. And it's a simple one, but it beautifully illustrates what's going on here. So in order to understand who is the light, I want you to think about the sun cool, giant, big ball of fire. Uh, it's massive. It's massive. Um, some of you are probably like me where you start reading about weird facts about something and you just get like totally into it. So you start reading, dude, do you know how big the sun is? It's like 900,000 miles big. Do you know that it's 110 times the dia- diameter of earth? Wait, let me do some calculations. That means you could fit a million earths in the sun. Like, I mean, think, and then, then if you're like me, you start to try to picture that or imagine that. A million earths, like a million earths fit in the sun. By the way, the sun composes 99% of the mass of our solar system. 99% of the mass of our solar system is the sun, which means our solar system is basically the sun and some space dust. There is the sun and dust. Sun burns at roughly 15 million degrees Celsius. Now, I could try to act smart and act act like I know what that means. What does that even mean, 15 million degrees? It's like, it's way hotter than fire, bro. Okay, what does that mean? (laughs) 15 million degrees, a million earths fit inside of it. It's so hot that it has to be super, super far away from us uh, so it doesn't light us on fire. It's so far away that it takes its light, traveling at the speed of light, eight minutes to get here. So it's like, there's the sun and space dust. There's pretty much one source of light, 99%. Now, there's also a lesser light though, right? A far lesser light, and that's the moon. Now, how does the, the moon shine? Does it have a light of its own? No, the, 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 the moon is just a space dust. It's a rock. It's a rock. It doesn't light, doesn't light. How does it work? The moon reflects the sun back down to us. Now, at its best, this is good. At its best, the moon only is able to reflect 3 to 12% of the sun back down to us. 
Because it's, it's, not, it's not like a mirror. It's not like a, got a good surface. It's not limestone. It's a it's rock. It's space dust. So at its best, it only reflects 3 to 12% of the light of the sun back to us. If you want to picture it, you have the, the giant sun. And when you see the, the moon in the night sky, this is what's occurring. As the earth rotates and turns its back on the sun, the earth's face can still see the moon. And the moon is reflecting 3 to 12% of the sun's light back down to earth. So you hear this. When the earth turns her back to the sun, the moon reflects the sun into that dark world. And so how do we shine as followers of Jesus in this world? You don't have a light of your own. You don't. And even if you did, it would be so disproportionate to the light of the sun, it would be insignificant, it wouldn't matter. The sun is 99% of the mass of the solar system. Even if you had a light, no one notices. However, when you reflect the sun, three to 12% might get through. And three to 12% will do in a dark world. And so what is the solution to the darkness in the world? The solution is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. But how has God in his infinite wisdom chosen to reveal some of his light? Through his followers who reflect his glory and goodness back into the world. And when they do so, the intent is that the people who observe that glorify the Father in heaven. The Father who is the Father of lights in whom there is no changing, in whom there is no shadow, in whom every good and perfect gift flow from. So you gotta like be the moon. That's how they used to say it back, back at camp. Be the moon. You reflect his glory and goodness back down to the world. Now, again, what, what I mean by that is something far more significant than just someone's rude to you at the grocery store. And so learn to bless them and not curse them out. Because remember, there is a real darkness in the world. And right now, as we speak, there are people shining lights in the darkest of places. I mean the darkest of places. And it's so easy to turn this stuff off because no one wants to be depressed. No one wants to read this stuff. But there are Christians shining lights in the darkest of places. This also came up on my Twitter feed. Beautiful young girl with a sign saying, free Leah, we'll get to that in a moment, but I want to talk about the identity of this girl. This young lady is the daughter of a woman named Miriam Ibrahim, a Sudanese woman. Miriam Ibrahim was a convert to Christianity. Her mother became a Christian and she followed. The Sudanese government considered that conversion a crime. And so the Sudanese government sentenced and they, they, they did some stuff to, to accuse her of multiple crimes. Um, but basically this little girl's mother, Miriam Ibrahim, was sentenced to 100 lashings and then to be hung for her faith. Um, the bad, the good news of that was that she was pregnant at the time of the sentencing. She was pregnant with her husband's child. By the way, her husband was disabled, so if she was removed, uh, that was how he survived. She took care of the disabled husband. Um, she was pregnant at the time, and so the, the court has a law, a mercy law, if you will, that said a woman who is pregnant can't receive the hundred lashings and can't be hung. 
So what they told her was you could convert to Islam or remain a Christian and upon the birth of your child, subsequent to that, receive the hundred lashings and then be hung. This woman says, I'm not going to deny Christ. So she spent the duration of her pregnancy in a prison cell shackled with her legs shackled to a floor. Her 20-month-old baby child spent that time with her. The 20-month-old child suffered with great sicknesses. You could imagine being in a prison cell, 20 months of age. He was sick, experiencing the trauma of being locked up. And with the shackles on her legs and her legs swelling outside of the shackles, bound to a floor, Miriam Ibrahim gave birth to her child in prison, saying, I'm not going to deny my Jesus. Man, you only got to shine 3 to 12% in a dark place to light up a room. Now, lucky for her and through God's sovereign spirit, uh, national attention, international attention was brought to this case. So all kinds of political pressure then began to mount. And the United States stepped in, other people stepped in. And after the birth of her child, she was actually granted amnesty uh, and was able to come to America. But she gave birth to a child in shackles with her 20-month-old baby beside her because she wouldn't deny Jesus. So when I say shine, you know, because this sounds like the ending of a Disney movie. Shine your light in dark places. No, no, there's evil and darkness in this world. Now, I showed you the picture of her daughter to show you that she's safe and is serving Jesus, but she has another sign, free Leah. Leah is this young lady. Several years ago, you remember, it was about four or five years ago, there was those 200 plus Nigerian girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Nigeria and taken captive by militants. That made the news and a lot of international attention was drawn to that. There was another one of those, there's been several of those, but there was another big one that took place roughly two years ago. And in this case, 119 girls were kidnapped by the militants, Boko Haram, and taken into captivity. Leah Sharibu was one of them. Now, the Nigerian government was able to broker a deal for the release of these girls. They basically released more militants of Boko Haram in exchange for these girls. Upon the release of this young lady, the militant captors said, we will only release you if you renounce Christ and convert. She was 14 at the time of her kidnapping. 14. She knew the consequences if she refused. She said, I'm not going to deny my Jesus. She was then given as a bride to one of the militants, and she's now currently in captivity. She's 16 years old. She's been there for two years. She's got to deny Jesus. So you see, the world's a dark place, a very dark place. And there are Christians and brothers and sisters out there shining in the darkest of places. Maybe the place you see the moon shining the most is in a dark prison cell when a woman given birth in shackles. So you see what God has called you to. God, when God says, be a light in the world, he knew what he was talking. When he told his followers, his first followers, shine as lights, he knew what would happen to them. He knew the persecution that would take place. It wasn't just all fine and good. So, 
what you have to ask yourself is, how are you reflecting today? Now, here's the temptation. You're gonna go, oh, I'm not ever gonna be in one of those situations. And the truth is, you probably won't. You probably won't. But are you today in this present moment developing the character and holiness and developing the moral backbone and the moral fortitude to do the right thing if presented with a trial such as this? Because maybe you won't have to do something like that. But trust me, there's going to be times in life where there's going to be something that's going to be your hour of trial. And when the hour of trial comes, have you spent your life developing the moral backbone and fortitude to be able to stand up and be a light in a dark place? Or will you willingly submit to the darkness? And so my challenge for us is not to think about all the great grand things because you're not wrestling with that right now. Maybe some of you are dealing with some heavy stuff like that. But you have to develop the holiness and the character now. God, help me, help me shot, reflect three. How about, God, I start with 1%. I want to reflect 1% of your light. Maybe you work up to 3% by the end of your life. That's still great. That's progress. But you got to start somewhere. And another temptation to do with this, especially among, especially among young people, is you'll go, I want to be a light. I, I get that. I want to be the moon. I want to go, I'm going to save up money and I'm going to do something. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to go drill wells for people who don't have clean drinking water. It's like, okay, good goal. You currently give none of your money away. How about you start with beginning to be generous today in some area of your life and maybe God's grace may work your way to do something great like that. It's like, just start with the basic things. But you, 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 you confess to somebody and you, you stop looking at pornography. What, what if you say today, God, I'm, you know what? I'm refusing to talk to my wife like that again. Do the little things. Reflect as much as you... See, be faithful with what you've been given today and then you may be able to do something down the road. But you ain't gonna go down here if you're not even being faithful here. And so my question for everyone today is, how are you reflecting? Are you reflecting your father's goodness back into the world? Do you wake up, say, God, I want my life to be seen by others and when others see it, they in turn glorify you. They know where the light comes from. Be the moon. Think about how you're serving, giving, forgiving, blessing, playing, rejoicing, worshiping, reconcile, liberating, and the list goes on and on and on. How are you living as a Christian? Jesus is the light of the world. And how does the moon get its light? You stare and saturate yourself with the glory of the sun. I'm going to prepare for communion. We prepare ourselves. I want us to be thinking about that. And one of the ways that we stare at the sun is at church, where you sing his praises, you hear his word, and you take communion as the people of God. When the world turns their back on the sun, the church stares and saturates itself at the sun. And in doing so, we reflect. Now, one other element to this. As Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the people have that backdrop of Solomon's dedication of the temple. And in that, I want to go back to Solomon's question that he asked in the middle of his prayer, the interruption. You know, he's like, but will God indeed dwell on earth? 
Behold, the highest heaven cannot contain you. What are we doing with this temple? And the answer for Solomon was that God showed up and he uniquely manifested his presence in the temple. That question should still haunt us today. Would God indeed dwell in a temple? Would God indeed dwell on earth, on the earth? When Jesus steps into the temple, Jesus answers the question, will God indeed dwell on earth? Yes, and more so, God will dwell in a human. Jesus, the son of God. And what ties this all together for us is there's an even further question. Will God indeed dwell in you? The highest heaven cannot contain him. A temple cannot contain him. A body cannot, but will he dwell in you? And the paradoxical answer that the scriptures give is, yes, indeed. The glory and radiance of the sun now dwells in all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God resides in you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How is God fighting the darkness? Through his body. He is the head. He sends his body out into the world like little lamps and lanterns and candles to fight and hold back the darkness. That is your role. That is your mission. Will God indeed dwell on earth? How about this? Will God even dwell in you? And the wondrous answer the scripture gives is indeed yes, he will place his spirit into you. Please stand as we take communion. All of this happens because of the cross. The cross is the place where the light of the world shines. Remember Jerusalem was gonna shine like gold and the nations would gather? When does that happen? When Christ is crucified on the hill outside of the gates of Jerusalem the crown of thorns on his head, dying not just for Israel, but for Jew and Gentile alike, so that all nations may come to him. The night Jesus was betrayed, he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It says, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you drink this, it's as if you're promising to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so Lord, may we reflect your glory and your light and may we proclaim your death and your resurrection in a dark place until you return. Help us to be faithful. In a moment, the prayer team will come up. If you have any prayers, concerns, you may want to take a first step towards Jesus, whatever it may be, they're going to be here for you up front. For the rest of you, I just want to pray a blessing over you. Father God, in the name of your son, Jesus, we come to you as the father of lights in whom there is no shadow, in whom there is no changing. May we be faithful to reflect your glory and goodness back into the world. May we properly bear your image and may we be more and more conformed to the image of your son with every passing day. Reveal to us the dark places in our lives, in our communities, in our workplaces where you would have a shine. And in turn, may people glorify you and come to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.